0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We'll be picking up here in chapter 21. In the midst of this section, dealing with fools and foolishness. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so just to make a clean start at chapter 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And this proverb ties together at least two immediately preceding proverbs. Verse 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. How can a man understand his way? And here, not only the individual man, but the king in his office. His heart is a stream of water and the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So as man can direct where a stream might go, uh, so can God direct the stream that flows from the heart of the king. So again, speaking to this idea of the Lord is ultimately in control and his sovereignty, his providence, are ultimately in control of all things whatever free will decisions we might be able to make based on those things that God has set underneath us will by no means thwart his plans. God is never up in heaven wringing his hands going, oh no, now what? (laughs) So we can fully entrust ourselves to him and fully humble ourselves before him as well. Now, the second part is this wisdom given to kings. So we saw that at verse 26, a wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. That is, a wise king is not only just, but then severe in his, in his justice. So as to discourage evil, I mean, not only to destroy and drive out evil, because that's a mercy unto those who would otherwise have to put up with it. But then also, in doing so, it is a deterrent to those who are watching and observing. So, of course, we've, we've spoken at length about how this is really what ails us in this modern age of lawlessness. There is no law. There is no law that is upheld. There is no law that is upheld with severe consequences, or at least not for all. So... Um, I don't know, I just saw it. I mean, this, it's, just so, it's just so commonplace, I don't even take note of the details anymore. But I just woke, awoke to some headline about it. A guy who murdered and paid bail, and now he's out. But he has the right color skin, you see. Whereas, you know, if you defend someone on a subway, but you have the wrong colored skin, straight to, straight to jail. Uh, this is the wicked day and age in which we live, and our kings are not wise, and our kings are subject to the king of kings. So wrath is coming upon them. That's where you know we should pray that our, our wicked rulers would step down. and We should pray that they're not elected to serve another term. And We should pray that as much for our people as for them. We pray for our, the wicked rulers. We should pray that they step down lest they heap more and more wrath upon themselves. And that is sure and certain to come. Because there is a wise king... Who is enthroned in heaven and reigns over every nation and holds every ruler accountable. And that wise king does indeed follow his own wisdom. (laughs) And thus he will winnow the wicked and drive the wheel over them in due time. And we should be rejoicing at that. Uh, We've spoken at that at length that niceness and nonviolence have been mistaken as Christianity. They're not. They're not. God is not. Nice, the way we would like him to be nice. And he is certainly not nonviolent. He's certainly not pacifistic either. So Christ is this wise king who winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. Now, how about 21:1? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, if we see this king as the king of kings also. How beautiful, how wonderful, because Christ says out of his heart will flow springs of living water. And so here is a king who is not only severe and just, but also gracious and merciful. That's at the heart of Christianity is that the justice of God is satisfied by Christ laying down his own life to satisfy that justice so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in this, Christ. So this heart from which flows living water. It's an imagery of the temple and Christ being the temple that flows forth with this living water. Um, What would it mean then that the Lord turns it wherever he will? That God turns the Christ, the King of Kings, heart, his gracious heart, flowing like waters of life wherever he wills, saving all whom he may. So a rather beautiful image of of grace there too when we consider this proverb in light of the revelation of Christ. All right, now I do think the primary meditation though ought to be that which accords with verse 24. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? You remember the answer to this riddle is by turning to the Lord. That's the only way we'll understand who we are, even individually. I mean, I, sometimes we're too self-obsessed and too turned in on ourselves and too preoccupied with ourselves, and that's a problem, obviously. But we won't know who we are by looking inside our own hearts. We're going to be a mystery unto ourselves. So we must look to the Lord in order to understand our way and the way we should go. And of course, that's an idea expressed in 27 as well. The spirit of the man is the lamp of the Lord searching all his innermost parts. Um, The Lord is the searcher and the one who finds out, not not we ourselves. And I think it's important to have that in mind because then you get a nice contrast and probably the intended contrast out of verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes but the Lord weighs the heart. So you remember the (coughs) refrain from Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. And that's really definitionally what sin is, is departing from God to do not what he wants, but what you want. So every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. So, just because it is right in a man's own eyes does not mean it is right in the ultimate or absolute sense, in the objective sense. So, then we should walk as Christians in fear and trembling, conforming our way to the way of the Lord. I'm reminded here of what St. Paul writes I know of nothing against myself, that is to say, I have a clean conscience, but I'm not thereby justified. Just because I'm ignorant of anything against myself, just because my conscience is clean, doesn't mean that I am, in fact, innocent before the Lord. Even if only in these matters, as opposed to some universal innocence which no Christian would confess. Yes. So we commend ourselves into the right judgment of the Lord who truly weighs the heart. All right, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any thoughts or reflections. I know it's early in the class. Maybe the wheels have just begun to spin. Everybody's okay so far? On to three then. Very, very important, essential, essential proverb. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. All right? We have Solomon here. Uh, He is the one who has built the temple. He is uh, living roughly roughly what year or years, span of years in the Old Testament? Yeah, 950 B.C., exactly right. Easy way to kind of, even if it's not perfectly accurate, just think of David as a thousand and Solomon after him. (laughs) So 950 is right on. So we've got the temple going, and the temple's been going on for quite some time. Just ballpark, when did Moses come around? you remember? 1,400 isn't bad at all. 1,400 and some odd change. So if you want to make it really easy in your mind, you just go 1,500 is Moses, 1,000 is David, and give you a little. Then you can think, too, that um, Moses was about as far away from the Lord's coming as Luther. We are about as far away from the Lord's coming as was Abraham. Have some nice symmetry there as long as you'll permit your mind to be a little general <laughs> and not too precise. All right, so in other words, the sacrificial system of Sinai is in full swing. It's been going on at least 400 years. That's what's going on in the temple. the sacrifices. Who was the one who commanded the sacrifices? God, of course. Now, there are two kinds of sacrifice, two categories of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Would anyone like to hazard a, a definition or an attempt to define those two categories of sacrifice in the Old Testament? There's a hand in the back. Okay, that's true. Yeah. okay, that's not that, that's actually fine. Yeah, that actually works. Okay, so more generally, uh, these are the two kinds of sacrifices. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving, which those would happen to be the breads and the grains and the, all these other, this other stuff. And then the others would be atoning sacrifices. Those would be the death of animals, the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Remember, the author of Hebrews makes that point. So you're exactly right. There are these two categories of sacrifices Eucharistic sacrifices or sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise, and then atoning sacrifices, where sacrifices are made uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Leviticus spells this out and says it's for the forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews says it's not for the forgiveness of sins. How do you solve that riddle? So you already know how. Um, did somebody say Jesus? Because <laughs> that's a great answer. It's always right. <laughs> okay, so think, so think of this. And I might, I might bend your mind a little with this, but that's okay. Alright, um, I want you to think broadly. Does baptism save? Okay. Does that mean that as soon as I baptize someone, they're automatically saved? Wait a minute, so does baptism save or not? No. <laughs> yes and no. Okay. Now, the Scripture plainly says that baptism now saves. That's to say it is the means and the mode through which God saves people. But as our Lord teaches, and so that's First Peter, as our Lord teaches in the Gospel of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So unbelief can render moot the promises of God in baptism. So baptism saves not in and of itself. If it's saved in and of itself, then you know we just, as I often say, we'd trick the community in for a barbecue on the lawn, we'd turn on the sprinklers, I'd pop up out of nowhere with a megaphone, we'd baptize everyone, ha, got you. You're in. But that's not how baptism. Works. It's not how baptism saves. Baptism doesn't save in and of itself. It saves as an instrument through which God grasps hold of an individual and applies all his promises to that individual. Does that distinction make some sense? Once you have that distinction locked in, in your mind, the Old Testament sacrificial system works the same way. That's why in Leviticus Moses will say that it is for the, that the sacrifices are for the forgiveness of sins, and the author of Hebrews will say they're not. They couldn't work forgiveness. It's the same paradox with the question does baptism save? Well, yes and no. Do the sacrifices bestow forgiveness? Well, yes and no. No, they don't bestow forgiveness in and of themselves. That's the author of Hebrews' point. But yes, they bestow forgiveness because the blood of the innocent animals shed points us to the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, that is shed once and for all. Indeed, Christ slain before the foundation of the world. So the blood of Christ is obviously then the blood, the atoning sacrifice that covers the sins of man from Adam to the last man born. And that forgiveness is communicated through baptism and the Lord's Supper in the New Testament, and through, I'm probably doing this the opposite way for you, but sorry, and and through the sacrifices and circumcision of the Old Testament. Those are the means or modes through which forgiveness is communicated. Okay, so now we know something about the sacrificial system and how it worked. Now, God's the one that commanded the sacrificial system. So how is it then that God could say, um, here, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice? Can you explain that to me? So if sacrifices, we've narrowed it down, are the sacrifices of atonement, they forgive not because of the blood of animals per se, but because it directs us to the blood that will be shed in Christ, then we know the sacrifices are forgiveness. So to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than to be forgiven. Can you make sense of that for me? You go go back to James, because you, you have to... Somebody would say something, but you need works to prove what they say is true. So if you're not doing righteousness and justice, you're, the sacrifice is meaningless. You just like your words. Okay. So, yeah. That's good. That's good. I like that. I wouldn't correct that in any way. Okay. Yes? About, what about what... Uh... Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Put that in the same category. In fact, there are many such verses. That's will come to find. And there's more than meets the eye in this Old Testament refrain we keep hearing. Please. Well, my thought is that we don't need to atone because Christ has done it for us. So the only thing left is to work in thankfulness to Christ or for Christ. Hmm, Likewise, I wouldn't object to that. I wouldn't object to that at all. So as a parent, would you rather your child do the right thing? Or would you rather your child do the wrong thing and then say they're sorry? The right thing! (laughs) Absolutely! And that's really what this proverb is saying. That God would rather us do the right thing up front than do the wrong thing and come with sacrifices in our hands. There's a New Testament teaching that's exactly to this this point in 1 John, John's first epistle. He writes, "I, I write these things to you that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father Christ the righteous. Plan A is don't sin. Plan B is if you do sin, there's Christ. If you do sin, there's sacrifices. Don't rely on Christ, don't rely on the sacrifices in a hypocritical way. Now for the men studying 1 Corinthians, we've just come upon this New Testament teaching. Very important, especially as certain slogans within the Lutheran church have become cliched and distorted. Remember your baptism, just keep going to communion. There's a danger that lurks in such sloganeering. Paul says, were not the people of old baptized into Moses through the cloud and the sea? Did they not have a baptism? Yes, they did. Did they not have a spiritual food? What was the spiritual food? Manna Manna, that they ate. Did they not have a spiritual drink? For they drank from that rock that was Christ. What's his point? We have, they had a baptism, we have a baptism. They had spiritual food, manna. We have the true spiritual food, Christ the manna, the true bread from heaven. They had a spiritual drink. They drank from the rock that was Christ. We have a spiritual drink. We drink from, remember how the rock was struck and water came out? Christ is struck, and what comes out? Water and blood. We have a spiritual drink. Nonetheless, St. Paul writes, God was not pleased with them. They fell into idolatry, sexual immorality, and rebellion, and God destroyed them in the wilderness. These things were written, St. Paul says, for our sake. Here's the great danger and limitation in the sloganeering of, go on sinning and just remember your baptism. Go on sinning and just keep coming to the Lord's Supper. St. Paul would say, are you crazy? That's an abuse of these things, and a, and a a most exceedingly dangerous abuse, because if you trample these holy things, to what will you return? So something we have to take very seriously there is that God desires us to do the right thing in the first place. In our love for the gospel, we can't fall into this way of like, Okay, well I love the gospel so much that I'm just going to go on sinning that grace may abound. St Paul of course precludes that. I love the gospel so much I'm just going to be f- picture myself free to sin and freely forgiven in Christ. That's a complete aberration and distortion of what the scriptures teach, old and new testament. Old and new testament alike say don't sin. I write these things to you that you may not sin, or here in this proverb do righteousness and justice. That's more acceptable to the Lord than when you say you're sorry, when you come with repentance and sacrifice, or when you remember Christ, or when you remember your baptism, or when you go to the Lord's table. Better to not sin at all than to sin and need forgiveness. Now, if we do sin, as we daily sin much, and we repent of those sins, God is faithful and just. Notice how he's faithful and just. And he will forgive our sins. How is his justice transformed? Because Christ fulfills that justice for us. If we have faith in Christ, and we desire to be forgiven in Christ, he is just to forgive us our sins because that penalty is already paid. So he is faithful, that is, he is steadfast, unwavering in his justice in Christ Jesus, which is all who repent shall be forgiven. But that's always plan B, so to speak, not plan A. And again, a thought experiment. When you die and go into the intermediate state of heaven where you're with the Lord, or if you picture the final state, that of which the prophet Isaiah speaks in our Old Testament lesson today where he says, "Behold, God says through the prophet, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. If you go to that final state where we're inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth and bodies resurrected, perfected, is there going to be the forgiveness of sins in heaven or in the new heavens and the new earth? No. No. Faith will pass away hope will pass away faith will pass away because it'll no longer be by faith but by sight hope will pass away because all hope will be fulfilled but what will not pass away love love will never pass away in heaven what will be done or what is being done and in the new heavens and the new earth what will be done is pure righteousness and pure justice No sin, no need for faith, no need for hope, no need for forgiveness. The gospel passes away, love endures forever. And of course, that's the teaching of Luther. That's why he says, only the law is eternal, because the law at its root and essence is love. In heaven there will be perfect love for God, perfect love for neighbor, Those are the two tables of the law. Thus, Luther says, only the law is eternal. The gospel isn't eternal. The gospel gets us there. Also why um, the angel in Revelation 14, remember this from the uh, Reformation text, the second reading, I think it's Revelation 14. He comes with an everlasting gospel, and guess what the everlasting gospel does not consist of? The forgiveness of sins. Because that's not the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel is reconciliation with God who made all things and perfect harmony with him and perfect worship of him. That is of what heaven consists now, and that is of what the new heavens and the new earth will consist. That's what the angel talks about. That's why it's an everlasting good news, an everlasting gospel. As opposed to, I don't mean to draw too harsh of a distinction here, but I suppose I will anyway, uh, as opposed to the gospel of this age, which is Christ crucified for you. And that is, in a sense, the foundation of the next age. It never gets left in the dust, but it is not eternal in the way that doing righteousness and justice are. Love for God and love for neighbor. All right. Let me pause there. See if you have any thoughts. As you're thinking, this is a this is a great rabbit hole we could go down because there is all kinds of wonderful stuff here in terms of the unfolding of the gospel. I'll just hint at it. Um, Psalm. Actually, we should just go real quick because it's we're on the cusp of Advent. We should do this. I'd be derelict. Um, keep a. Uh, Keep a finger here, Proverbs 21, and let's go to Psalm 40 very quickly. Because this is the same theme, slightly different angle. And the two weave together. But this is a very fun thread to be aware of. And then you'll see it either passively, you'll see it pop up, or actively, you can go (coughs) pursue it. Okay, Psalm 40. Let's just start at verse 1. Why not? And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. What am I doing? Job 40. I was wondering, how is this to... Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Sorry about that. Fat fingers low mind here we go Psalm 40 are we okay here Psalm 40 I hope so let's try it again I waited patiently for the Lord yes yes okay thank goodness I waited patiently for the Lord he inclined to me and heard my cry he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Here's the key now. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Alright, we could continue on, but that's enough. Okay, what's going on? Who is, who is this? Who is speaking? Okay, no, no problem with it being David. That's, that's absolutely true. So often the Psalms, though written and spoken by the human author, are also words that are spoken by by God, generally, and here would be the Son specifically. So look at verse 6, and now look at it in the language of Jesus. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. What's the problem with all mankind? What's the, what necessitates forgiveness? Our ears are closed. We can't hear God's Word. We can't do God's Word. Or, like my children sometimes, we hear but we don't listen. (laughs) So you have given me, here the me is Christ. The you is the Father. You have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. Clearly Christ. Now look at the contrast. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Is there any sin within him? Then there's no need for sacrifice. This is God's plan A. The righteousness of Christ. And to be, for us to be reconstituted in that righteousness. Okay, so if you uh, flip forward then to Hebrews 10. I'll try to get the right book this time. If you flip forward to Hebrews 10, you can see that this is not my imagination. And this this whole section leading up to will be apropos of the theme. So, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect Those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, now quoting what we just read in Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, look at the difference, but a body you have prepared for me. Remember how it was in the psalm, it was an ear, and now it's a body. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, verse 8 is the end of the quotation of Psalm 40 and the argument of the author. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body. See back to verse 5. The body of Jesus Christ once and for all this will teach you profound things. Because this means that the sacrificial system and the continuous sinning and forgiving of sin is set aside because in Christ is one who needs no sacrifice. He has an ear, he has a body, and he does the will. And because of these things, he loves God and loves man and so lays down his Body as the ultimate sacrifice of love. Love to God, even as God is forsaking him, love to man, even as man is crucifying him. And by this faithfulness, this willingness of heart, and this once and for all sacrifices, have all sins been atoned for. Then that only establishes the new. That as we are baptized into Christ Jesus and being conformed into his image, we ever need less and less of the sacrifices to be made. We ever become more and more like him doing the will of the Father. That is, to, and I, obviously I'm speaking there imprecisely, poetically, we have less and less need for atonement, need for repentance and atonement, and more and more are we simply doing righteousness and justice, doing the will of the Father. Okay, so hopefully that gives you um, food for thought that there are many other strands and statements to this effect in the Old Testament that it goes, it increasingly becomes a transition. God institutes the sacrificial system as his grace, but increasingly shows frustration toward it because it's not the desire, it's not the will of God that man just keep on sinning and sacrificing and God keep on forgiving. That's a penultimate goal. That's the first, but the first is set aside for the second. The second is that man would be renewed internally, and these things would be put away. What, is, what did we read that the, in Psalm 40, that the law is where? Is in his heart, is in Christ's heart. Do you remember what the nature of the, oh, we've got to do this quick. Um, let's go to Jeremiah 31. Okay, once you're at Jeremiah 31, uh, go to verse 31. Easy to remember. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. What's the old covenant? The old covenant was Sinai, and it was... Ratified and put in place by the blood of what? Mm -hmm. Bulls. I will make a new covenant, which means there must be a new covenant set in place by new blood. What blood is that? Christ. Christ. That's why he, he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. Not the blood of bulls, not the old covenant, the new covenant in my blood. What is? This cup drink of it what happened to the blood of the bulls at the base of sinai yeah he splattered it on the people what happens now with the blood of christ it's placed upon your lips See the difference? So the coming of Christ is the one who will have the law written in his heart. And then part of his new covenant is that he will take that law and write it into our hearts. So when you're going to communion, you're not just going there for the forgiveness of sins. Christ explicitly says that it is for the forgiveness of sins. But once forgiven, the heart is cleansed and renewed and transformed into Christ's heart. Christ's heart defined as having the law within and the new covenant received is him putting the law within us to do righteousness and justice. So I'll continue on. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That's what's according to Holy Scripture. That's what's happening in Holy Communion. As you partake of the covenant of Christ, the New Testament in his blood, what he is doing there is writing his law within you and writing it upon your heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. See how Christ says, for you, for the forgiveness of sins? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. All right, well, we could go on, but that proves the point. Okay, so the whole goal of the New Testament is like we have in Christ the will of God embodied. That means that he lays down his life in perfect atoning sacrifice. He sheds his blood as the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. But in that same act, he is making us as he is. He is the only human who has the law written on his heart. And he is, through his very covenant, writing the law upon our hearts as well. So much superior is Christ and this covenant than Moses and the Old Covenant. So much better is it to do justice than to do Old Testament sacrifices in order to cover your sins. Make sense? So much greater is it to I write these things to you that you may not sin to not sin than it is to sin and be forgiven in Christ. Okay? I see a hand in the back, please. We'll get you the microphone here. I I know I've brought this up before, uh, but I think if you could comment on, I think it's in Numbers, uh, where they're sacrificing bulls, and... The priest or somebody says, "Pour the blood out on the ground because the life is in the blood." And that, to me, that's uh, just comment on that because I think it's really important. Because all of a sudden, with Christ's sacrifice, yeah, the life's in the blood still. Yeah, we drink it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So there's a blood prohibition that the people of our God are not to drink the blood. I think, as someone recently pointed out, to me, I mean, the life is in the, the life of the animal is in the blood. So if I mean, if you drink that blood, you're receiving their life as your life. It's being transformed. There is a prohibition against that. Um, not not because it's inherently wrong. Other, if it were inherently wrong, we couldn't drink the blood of animals today, but we do as we as we eat there's no there's no sin in that why this becomes a component of the ceremonial law that they drink not the blood because the life is in the blood has to do uh, largely with how it was understood in the pagan world how it's understood in some parts of the world today that you're gaining some sort of like life force or strength or almost supernatural ability from these animals god forbids all this is paganism And through the blood prohibition, you cannot drink the blood, the life is in the blood, all the animals who are eaten have to be uh, drained, um, and then uh, likewise all the sacrifices are drained, so the blood and the body are separated. That, by the way, is is a really important cue to wrapping your head around what's going on in the New Covenant, in the Lord's Supper, that may not be immediately obvious to you, that Jesus doesn't simply say, take, eat, and drink, this is me, it's not about his general generic presence. If he were, he'd just say, hey, it's me. You've got me. We're communing together. We're one. But that's not what he's doing. In the action itself, he takes the bread and says, this is my body. Then as an entirely separate action, he, indeed, after supper, remember that detail? As an entirely separate action, he takes the cup and says, this is my blood, Where are the body and the blood separated? In sacrifice. That's how you know that this isn't just Jesus saying, Hey, I want to be really close to you. I want to be one with you. I want to share my presence with you so that we're together. That's not what he's saying. He takes his body as one thing and gives it, and he separates the blood. That's what a priest would do. So the body and the blood are separated. That's how we know it's a sacrifice. We know that it's a sacrifice as a noun. That's to say what we're eating and drinking is the sacrifice, that which was to be and was offered on the cross. And you even might know that because if you've received the wafer, you'll sometimes call it the host. That's short for the Latin hostia, which is sacrifice you receiving the sacrifice, but it is also a sacrifice as a verb. Because Christ is separating his body from his blood. That is the act of a priest sacrificing. He is making atoning sacrifice. Now, is Christ making atoning sacrifice every divine service we have? No. He has made it once and for all, and we are participating in that once and for all. It's exactly the way the formula of Concord explains it. It's hard to wrap your mind around it first, but once you get it, all the light bulbs go on pretty bright. So this is then the idea of his separating the body and the blood is a sacrifice. Now, what would normally be eaten by the priest? Not the blood, just the body. And the priests would, properly speaking, be the ones to eat from the altar. In Christ, you are a royal priesthood but now you're not merely given the body but also the blood i think that if you if you wrap your, if you if you're like old testament literate and you wrap your mind around this way of thinking that would have been the most difficult thing for the disciples is when he said take drink this is my blood that would have been like what because the mantra every sacrifice every passover every everything is don't drink the blood, the life is in the blood. And then Christ says, This is my blood, drink of it. And the light bulbs go on again. Because, capital T, capital L, the life is in the blood. And that's John 6. If you do not drink my blood, you have no life. But whoever drinks my blood has life. So you can see that um, in Jesus' sermon where he likens himself uh, to the manna. He's the true heavenly bread, his body specifically, that we must eat, and his blood is that drink that we must drink in order to have life. So, does that kind of help? Okay, great. Thanks for bringing that up. All right. so just returning back to Proverbs 21, I didn't really intend from the outset to spend all our time on verse 3, but hopefully it'll clarify some things, and hopefully it'll also open some biblical vistas to you so that when you find, like, even in Psalm 51, where David's saying, you know, sacrifice you did not desire, but a broken and contrite heart, you now have a, a sort of theological tree, and you can locate that branch now, not as an isolated statement, but as a branch of a much larger theme, of a much larger theological tree, that's growing up in the Garden of the Scriptures. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The Lord be with you.